0: listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today, I'm talking for the second time to Alex Kladov, author of Rust Analyzer, the most widely used language server extension for Rust, who is now a full-time Zig programmer at Tiger Beetle. This time, we talk about compilers, including ways they can do incremental compilation, memory management strategies, modules and boundaries, and even monomorphization. And now, incremental compilation.
1: All right, Alex, welcome back. Yeah. Nice to have me again,
0: Richard. Yeah. So we were talking previously about compilers and specifically about compilers in the context of not running a sort of batch build that sort of starts and then finishes, but rather a long-running build where you have sort of like a a process that's running, like a watch process or like a language server or an editor plugin or something like that. And so you have this sort of long-lived state in the compiler. And my assumption has always been that you still want to do some sort of arena allocation for that. But you kind of had a different point that you were bringing up about that.
1: Uh, yeah. Basically, I wrote a bunch of long-lived compilers. I don't think I've ever used, like, you know, classical arena even once. Well, maybe I'm doing this wrong, but maybe I have a point. But one thing I need to clarify here is that, well, what's an arena? Because there's, like, well, kind of like the general idea of an arena is that you allocate a continuous bit of memory and all the stuff goes into this thing. So you just bump pointer and bump. Here's the thing. But there are different implementations. In one implementation, when you allocate something inside the arena, what you get back is just a pointer. So arena has an interface which is equivalent to your general purpose allocator. It mm-hmm. is allocation. In another technique, what you get back is not a pointer but rather an index. So your arena isn't just raw slice of, but it is like a vector of, I don't know, structs, a vector of functions, a vector of whatever. And what you get back is an index. And yeah, kind of like, well, I haven't measured this. I don't think my choice of using indexes versus pointers is justified by rigorous measurements and whatever, but I usually just reach out to pointers by default and kind of like, The main reason for that, if we stick from a performance angle, is that just indexes are just smaller. You're probably going to run things on a 64-bit machine. So your pointer would be 64 bits and your index is going to be only 32 bits because, well, like 4 billion is enough to address any kind of thing in a compiler. Yeah. Given that you typically have graphs and trees, you probably want things to refer to each other. So you actually are going to store those indexes of pointers in a bunch of places. And yes, well, using 32 bits instead of 64 bits, seems like it could potentially end up.
0: Yeah, okay. So I'm glad you brought up that clarification. So I'm definitely talking about the, I mean, I always thought of them as sort of slices, I guess, is that approach, where you're talking about it in terms of like, yeah, you have a 32-bit index. So that definitely saves a lot of memory compared to having, I mean, it's like 50% memory reduction times you have a ton of these things. So yeah, not using pointers, but rather, however we allocate the memory, the way that we're going to say, you know, this thing refers to this chunk of memory is with a 32-bit index rather than a 64-bit pointer. Okay, so that does mean that you're now tied to some particular, I guess, allocator or something like that. Like, you don't want to have an index into sort of general memory with some global allocator. That's just going to cause problems. And you can't, like in a global allocator, if it gives you back 64-bit pointer... As I understand it, you generally speaking, at least like in Rust, which is what the Rock Compiler is written in, you can't ask for global memory from the global allocator in a way where you can just be like, oh, I'll take the pointer and I'll just throw away half of the bytes. There's a way to get it to do that in a way where you're not potentially losing information and it just doesn't work out anymore. I don't think you can say, like, give me a 32-bit index from my global allocator (laughs) allocation, as far as I know.
1: Well, I guess... But actually, you could do something like that if you kind of like make assumption that they use this single key throughout and then you kind of like write some unsafe code, which actually attends those missing bits on top of it. But it's going to be ugly and that's like <laughs> not going to be composable in a bad way. Right. Like say you're going to use HashMap and that HashMap would want full pointers. Exactly. But actually, this reminds me of this thing in JVM where they actually do use 32 bit pointers unless your heap at runtime grows beyond four gigs. So it's not an unheard of
0: Wow. OK. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> I don't think we're going to go that advanced. That sounds like that would be a lot of, yeah, pointer dereferencing would get a lot more complicated if you tried to seamlessly upgrade from four bytes to eight bytes at runtime. I mean, so I do know that there is some way, at least this works on Unix. I think it works on Unix and Windows, where you can say, When you're doing like the low-level virtual allocation, you say, operating system, give me this many pages of memory, you can ask it, I believe, in some predictable way that you can get back an address that will fit in 32 bits. You can just drop half of the bits and then you're fine. But yeah, let's assume we're not going down that rabbit hole. Let's assume we are saying, okay, I want to do these allocations and (laughs) manage them myself and not try to do a global allocator. And then all of my indices are into these, let's call them arenas. I think that's a fine thing to call them. So, what I'm more concerned about is okay well so so there's there, I guess there's two questions here. so one is, given that these things are long lived, what happens when we do a bunch of work and then later on we do some more work, and then later on we do some more work. One possible answer is well, we just never free anything. we just never clean up old unused memory, we just keep loading more and more stuff, and then hopefully you end up restarting the program or the process before the the OS runs out of virtual address space. That is a potential way to go with it, I suppose. It's definitely a lot simpler from the programmer's perspective to not think about that. But of course, usually what people would want to do is to reclaim the old memory somehow. So at that point, we kind of have a split. One way is we can do the thing that global allocators generally do, which is you maintain some sort of free list that says like, okay, well, we've allocated this and this and this. So that's available now. And the next time we go to allocate, we'll check the free list first and see if there's any old slots that we could reuse and see if the new allocation will fit in any of those. And you get into bucketing and all that. Or option B is you could say, well, we're going to be try to be really arena oriented. And basically, what we're going to do is every time we decide that it's time to sort of clean up the old arena and get a new arena, whatever criteria you have for that, We're just going to make a brand new arena, allocate as much memory as we need to preserve all the stuff that we care about, and then just copy all the stuff out of the old arena, and then the old arena is garbage and just throw it away. I was kind of thinking of trying to aim for that second option, mainly because that way each allocation is always about as fast, no matter what. Because in the free list approach, as you get more heap fragmentation over time, allocation can slow down because you're checking this increasingly large free list with all these like weirdly sized things that don't happen to unless you get very lucky, match up with the exact sizes of new things you're trying to allocate. And it seems like the longer the process runs, the slower things would get. Whereas with the arena approach, it's always very fast to do new allocations. And then the cleanup should take approximately the same amount of time I would think every time you need to do it. That's my intuition, but also I have never tried this. <laughs> it's more like, you know, we're working on like building for it with this design in mind. And so I'd love to get your perspective on it.
1: Yeah. A bunch of, okay, I, I guess I like have like five or six orthogonal prints here. So I will try to not lose most important ones. But let's start with simple things first. So this idea of knock lift process is actually one place where a pointer style arena. Might actually be helpful huh. because let's say, okay, you are like LSP server and you are serving go to definition. So, obviously, while you're go to definition, there is some kind of persistent data which you are computing, like parsing, computing types, and you want to keep that stuff available for any further requests. But probably you're going to have a bunch of temporary garbage there, like something which you Use only for this single specific request, and you're not going to need it anywhere. Like I don't know, like for example, let's go all the way to LSP. So you need formats like this JSON in the end. So like that memory needs to leave somewhere. Or maybe like in the middle of resolving go-to definition, you need to sort something, and sorting needs some extra memory. After you sort it, you actually store persistent sorted array, but well, extra memory during sorting sorting will be helpful. So For these kind of things, I would actually really love to see a pattern where you pass an extra argument called like scratch arena (laughs) into anything. And you kind of like allocate no persistent stuff there and in the end, you just free. Honestly, I think this is just like the default and I think that we actually talked about that last time when we were discussing like hey, can we do like scratch arena for services? for web servers. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, kind of like, yeah, I would expect that would be a, like default way to with applications, but uh, strangely, very few people actually actually do that.
0: Yeah. Well, I've actually heard, this is a very small tangent, but the JAI language, I've heard that they actually have that as a language concept. Like every function just has access to a thing called like Scratch and they can just, I don't know, or, or like, I think it's called Context maybe and then Context has some like Scratch arena. But anyway, yes, uh-huh. I agree. Yeah. For any anything that's sort of Ephemeral that has like a really well defined start and end point. Then like yeah, we should do a separate arena for those.
1: Yeah, the second, the second is that. Well, I would actually go and add the third approach. So the first approach is that we yeah, kind of like we have like general like free list or like general garbage collection, so that we have like a bunch of located stuff, a bunch of free stuff, and whenever we want to locate, like we like go and look for something which was free. Uh huh. The second approach is sort of like semi-space collection, where you just like allocate, 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 maybe there is some garbage, but in the end we decide, hey, that's that's enough, we are an out of memory, let's try to figure out what we need right now and kind of like just not even like garbage collect the rest, but just like evacuate all the stuff we need. Which is kind of like similar to, you know, just restarting restarting your process, kind of, like, in a sense. Well, I <laughs> guess like, yeah. I guess like you kind of like I want to keep various caches, so you like want to like hold off on computations you've already done. But again, because everything is pure, there is always a choice between remembering some memory or just redoing computation from scratch. So true, yeah, yeah. that's like, yeah. But there is a third way, and this actually connects to incremental computation. So kind of like if you think about like code evolving over time and the requirement to do some kind of mentality, you get a notion of ID. like Not necessarily the ID, which is just like a number, a physical ID in an arena, but an ID which allows you to say, hey, this fool at this point in time and this fool at that point in time are actually kind of the same object. And yeah, there are kind of like maybe some changes from one point to another, but the changes affect only parts of the object. And it's kind of like... The identity is the same. And like, you use these identities to like track dependencies. And then what you could do is that you could say that, okay, between version bar 1 of the code and version 2 of the code, you store this foo at exactly the same location. So your logical identity defines your physical location. And that way, you kind of like get a little bit of garbage collection for free in a sense that, if stuff changes, it ends up being overwritten in place. And you don't need to, like you know, write some logic here to detect garbage values because you just reuse the same slot over and over again. There is still garbage. The garbage appears when a thing with identity ceases to exist. Let's say right. you renamed your fool to bar, and then what the slot for full kind of like remains unoccupied yeah and that's garbage but it is like massively smaller amount of garbage in comparison to a situation where like you just allocate stuff over and over again and that kind of like place-based garbage collection, how you call it is what like rust and Liza ends up doing not intentionally it's just like how it ends up working because we never ever free the memory everything is like just allocated and yeah whatever But it doesn't actually grow because, well, kind of like for two reasons. One reason is that, well, when things change, they end up being overwritten in place. So kind of like old version goes away, new version comes in. And the second reason is that, well, kind of like if you imagine language server in a single editing session, you're probably only going to add only so much code. Like, I mean, like, well, maybe you're coding like eight hours in a day straight. So you put it up like eight hours change, but the code base you're working with, well, it probably have existed for months or years. There's just more code, which doesn't change than the code, which gets written. So if you just like, you know, treat it as if there is no delete button, if like, you know, just like append, append, append the code and just never delete all versions, I think that also would end up okay. So I'm kind of like actually like anything. If I'm to write a similar thing in a principal way, I would be very tempted to say that, hey, we're just are free stuff. And, well, eventually, if we run out of memory, we just restart and, well, we can stuff from scratch. Because kind of, we can stuff from scratch, in some sense, is equivalent to evacuating and objects.
0: Interesting. Okay, so let me see if I understand this right. So the basic idea is that it sounds kind of like you have a hash map where the key is like the identifier of the thing you're storing. So you have like a function called foo. And basically, all the data for foo always goes in the same spot in memory. And therefore, if the user completely rewrites foo, it's fine. You don't have to clean up the old garbage and allocate new stuff because you're just overwriting the old stuff that was at the foo slot. And the only problem is when you delete something called foo, then like that slot is unoccupied. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. So two questions about that. So one is, what happens if I'm not deleting foo, but rather I'm just adding more stuff inside foo, I'm making the foo function longer? I mean, clearly these different functions take up different amounts of space in memory, right? It's not like they each get one slot, and the slot is the same number of bytes, I would assume. That seems like that couldn't work out. So like, how does it handle that?
1: Yeah, so kind of like, the trick here is that like, things are hierarchical. So function gets longer, that means that the body gets longer, and well, how do you store a body? And one way to store a body is that you say, okay, there is like foo and there is like a vector with all the expressions belonging in this function. So kind of like function foo physically owns the memory. So there is no like a single global arena of all the expression, but each function owns like its local arena. So when you change the model foo, you just overwrite that arena completely. Ah, interesting. At least that's that is what, what is happening with rationalizer. And this is a kind of like one of the biggest architectural drugs of Salsa in that when you work on like a scriptural compiler, you would really love to think about this as some kind of a relational model where you just say, hey, there is like functions and structs and types and there is some relationship between that. But you don't want actually to describe the way you store them. You want to have like some kind of a mechanism which just like, you know, allocates the memory where it is coming. At least as salsa is used in Rust right now, you actually have to specify where like, every specific thing goes. So mm. kind of like, if you say, hey, there is function, and function have bodies, and bodies consist of expressions, then you actually need to write that code which says, hey, a function has a vector, elements, which are bodies.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So the approach that I was thinking of, the main idea that I had was, it, it's yeah, it's really hard to guess which of these is going to pan out <laughs> or, or be the best, especially because it's so time-consuming to do experiments. It's like, well, pick one, and then it'll take a few months to implement something that's benchmarkable, and then you can try it against other things, you know, in long-running processes across long editor sessions and see what happens. Good luck. <laughs> but the idea I had was kind of to go in the opposite direction in the sense of, rather than having this like, sort of hierarchy of each thing owns its own set of memory, it's like there's one arena. We try to make the nodes inside the arena as compactly represented as possible. And then basically, anytime you make a change to a top-level declaration like foo, we say, okay, well, we've got everything in this arena that is before the foo definition and everything that's after the foo definition. So first, make a new arena, copy everything from the old arena before foo into there. Now, generate the new foo into the new arena, right at the spot where foo goes. And then once you're done, copy everything from the old arena that was after foo into the new arena. So, kind of the bet there is that, well, maybe it's not obvious, but I'm kind of assuming that we want to do the work to just redo the entire declaration every time, not necessarily try to keep something that's sort of live updatable across the entire module or even across the entire project. Just kind of think about one declaration at a time in terms of when it comes to like the expression itself. And then basically be like, look, mem copies are pretty fast. The amount of time it takes, even if it's a lot of bytes, the CPU is really good at copying a big contiguous chunk of bytes. So copying everything from the old arena, as long as it's contiguous like that from before foo and then after foo, that's going to take so little time that it's not even really worth worrying about. And so that is sort of like a general principle means that we never have any memory fragmentation, everything's as contiguous as possible. We never have any significant pause for quote-unquote garbage collection because every single time you redo the definition, we just copy everything over, and we never have any memory leaks either. That works for expressions. I don't think it works as well for things like type checking, but I have other ideas for those, which we can talk about. But I'm curious what you think of that. Does that, I don't know, does that sound like, is there some, something where you like, that sounds like it would not work for some reason?
1: It actually sounds like a close, like crazy idea. which have been totally turning head this last few months, so Yeah. yeah. I kind of like stopped working on compilers. Like I'm now working on the database. Right. And well, <laughs> the databases are fun because there is just like a single data structure, log structure merge tree. Uh-huh. And kind of like the idea is like super simple. So okay, so let's say you like have like a sorted array, and you want to make modifications to the sorted array. The, the problem is that like if you insert it in the middle, then you have to memcopy the whole thing, and now you like remember that you're in database. So the step is actually on disk, and moving by two meters slow so You three not you don't, you, don't, you don't want to achieve the right place. So what you yeah. do is that you say, okay, so here are like some spots where I want to change this array. So I'm going to make a new array, which contains just the changes, uh, just the change spots. And I kind of like overlay two arrays on top of each other, so that when I do a lookup, I kind of like look up in the terminal story. If I got my entry there, well, then that's there. If not, I go to my kind of like array underneath. And I also take care to avoid entries which are shadowed by the new array. So, and I I was thinking in the context of like, how could you make uh, beautiful syntax trees efficiently? And kind of like the rough idea is that, okay, let's represent a syntax tree as just a flat array and with a property that any like syntax node is actually a segment like the descendants of any subtree is a segment so the way to modify this data structure is that you kind of like create a new array small array for your change right you replace node foo with node bar so you kind of like make a small subtree for node bar and you overlay those two together so that your syntax tree is actually a single array but a stack of arrays and when you do lookups, well, you start from the top array, you go to the bottom array, and the first array where you hit the node you're looking for is the one you look for. And kind of like on the way, you kind of like need to do some like pointer adjustment or like upset adjustment. Because, like, for example, if you delete the node and your topmost array says, Hey, this node is deleted, then when you find a node in the bottommost array, you like need to like adjust the offsets. And the cool thing here, like why databases work is that there is like this compaction iteration where you could look at this like, stack of arrays right on top of each other. You can take two of them and you can merge them by actually like, removing entries, which are shadowed. And the cool thing about compaction is that it is an iteration which affects only the physical store and doesn't affect the logical store. So you could do compaction when you have free time. Where well, you have spares view capacity, and that 's why I was like thinking about okay let's maybe when users user is typing furiously into the editor, we are just going to like release stuff on top of each other, and that makes our analysis slower because well, now we need to drill potentially deeper into the stack of arrays, but as soon as they stop typing, we notice them, and you know just kind of like do this we copy amortizing this operation of 50 indexes and whatnot, and that sounds like something which potentially could be a pretty general, incremental thingy to redo things.
0: That's really interesting. That
1: reminds me of, have you ever seen this talk
0: called Compacting the Uncompactable? Not really. Okay, so it's similar to what you just described, except that they do it with general-purpose malloc. And the way that they do it is basically by remapping operating system pages. So you get some memory fragmentation, and you have two OS pages that have, they just kind of look like a bunch of dots you know where it's like okay there's some, there's some memory used here memory used there but then like they're not totally in sync with one another but as long as all of the unused spaces sort of line up you can just merge those two pages together into one page and so basically what they do is they periodically will do a scan and try to identify these pages as quickly as possible and then once they can they just have the os remap them together such that now, you have the same pointers that you originally did. All the same addresses still work exactly the same way as they used to. They're just now remapped in the OS. And so they did this to Redis and they observed some graphs of a long-running Redis instance and like what this does to its memory usage and overall performance. It was pretty cool. I don't know if that would necessarily work when you have something on disk, though. It probably wouldn't. At least, not the way I'm thinking about it. Maybe, maybe it would, but I don't know. I need to think about that some more, I guess. Yeah, that's really interesting. Although I wonder if in the specific case of a compiler that's just running in memory and when you're dealing with the size of things that you're dealing with, I wonder if it pays for itself or if it's just like, yeah, just copy them all. It's going to be fine.
1: Well, I'm pretty sure that all is not going to work attractively because if you literally do a something for all things you have, that's going to be painful. I have like a specific story here about a crystallizer and salsa. So that's kind of like incremental computation thingy, where kind of the idea is that, well, you got to avoid work. And well, if you avoid it to work, then you won. The problem is, turns out that actually avoiding the work can be pretty slow. So right. <laughs> the way it also works, after a change, it kind of it needs to go and figure out, it, like, hey, what was changed. So kind of like before actually using anything, it needs to confirm that, hey, this is reusable so that all, all dependencies are fresh. And it turns out that for like real world, like dependency graphs, that actually adds up to like, 100 milliseconds, like at 100 milliseconds, so it's a significant amount of work. So we add an extra capability for Salsa to kind of like allow conformant that stuff didn't change in batches. So that basically you kind know, of, like Salsa assumes that you never ever touch standard libraries, so it doesn't actually need to look at uh, the standard library items, but well, if you touch something like, in the standard library, then like, it's, it's going to be slow. So this is mostly unrelated, except for the fact that hey, if you have a real like for everything loop in your compiler, that's not going to be fast enough, probably. Well, I guess it's kind of scratching it. Because like we start again, this is like hundreds of milliseconds. And well, that is sound so it's like you know, just like this horrendous graph of allocated objects. Like probably if you just like, pack this uh, all into the array, use like 10 times less memory than salsa, then it might actually be like, you know, okay, but yeah, I wouldn't feel comfortable. Either. So I think you kind of think if you want to do this copying, you need some way to limit the damage there. So either you actually need kind of like small arenas, like maybe an arena for file, or like an arena for compilation unit, or something like that. Or you need to, you know, somehow like amortize and batch some bits. So that for example, yeah, you're doing this main copy, but you're doing this mem copy like once per 1,000 elites or something like that, so that it ends up right. being horrendously slow.
0: Yeah, I think that's one definite possibility. Like you could, for example, have a little bit of buffer where it's like, okay, I just made an edit to foo. I know that given that the user just edited foo, there's a pretty good chance that the next edit they're going to make is also going to be to foo. So what I can do is I can say, all right, I'm going to leave a little bit of buffer at the end of foo, kind of like a, a capacity and like a, you know, a hash map or a vector or something just a little bit of space at the end of that so that I just have some buffer in case you want to add new stuff specifically to Foo. And then the next time I copy something else, I can just sort of copy over and just get rid of that buffer.
1: Yeah, essentially a gap buffer.
0: So going back to something we were talking about earlier, which was sort of compilation unit size, I was thinking about like kind of the idea that I had in my mind was to do it as like one arena per module. So if I have a whole module graph of things, like one module per file, each of those modules gets its own arena. And then, so when I'm doing a mem copy, let's say I have one declaration in the middle of that module that I'm making a change to, it would be basically mem copying everything before that declaration then everything after that declaration. Granted, something else that I haven't quite sussed out exactly how it should work is I think there might be a little bit of tension between wanting to be able to do all of that in like one mem copy and then also at the same time, wanting to organize things using like struct arrays type stuff in memory. Because the more struct array type stuff we're doing, the more things are kind of dispersed across different regions of memory. And therefore, we'd have to do like, n mem copies instead of just one, versus if like everything to do with one declaration is all in one contiguous chunk. That's better for the mem copying strategy, but it's potentially worse for other like, access patterns.
1: Yeah. So I guess they're like, Two questions here is one is what's the right granularity of our arenas? And the next one is like, how can we reconcile structurally with like multiple memcopies? Let's start with the second one because I think that's easy. And my hypothesis here is that once you are memcopying large enough chunks, like I don't know, like basically like a page or something like that, Mm then it doesn't really matter. All that much, what are you do like one mem copy or two mem copies? Basically, the overhead of memcopy copy is constant because, like, it's all going to be like SIMD or something, and there is just like some extra flap at the very end. So, if your chunk is uh, relatively large, it probably doesn't matter all that much that you have structural rating there.
0: Well, I'm thinking more in terms of like cache. So, if we have, for example, we're doing structured array, and therefore, like what we need to copy is in like different parts of memory. Then, as I understand it, one of the reasons that mem copy can be pretty fast is that it's really amenable to prefetching. So, if I have like some huge, you know, like I don't know, <laughs> I say huge, but let's say thirty whole kilobytes of bytes right in a row, then, well, if I want to mem copy all thirty k of that, then after I'm going through like the first part, the CPU is predicting that okay, well, I see what you're doing here. We should probably prefetch the next thing that we're gonna be copying next. And so what ends up happening is that pretty much all of the stuff that you're copying ends up being just in L1 cache by the time you get to looking at it. And so you don't have to be waiting on cache misses. Whereas I would think that doing a struct of arrays thing, I mean, unless maybe we issued explicit prefetch instructions or something, I would think that it would be much less amenable to prefetching because it's not just all contiguous, same
1: chunk of memory. Well, yeah. You would have a constant time more cache misses. But that is only costing constant time. So I think the math works out this way. If your data is large, so it is like a couple of cache lines in any of your arrays, then it might not really matter all that much that, well, you're not optimal. Because even if you're not optimal, you're still pretty fast because a size of right. data is slow. And if, on the other hand, your data is large, then it doesn't matter that you have a couple of pickups along the way. Because those constant time breakages in your access pattern will be dominated by just the amount of data you need to show through.
0: Could be, yeah. I mean, I guess the real question kind of comes down to in practice, how big are modules in terms of like in memory representation? I mean, on disk, like, you know, who cares? (laughs) But of course, like in memory, it's like you got all this metadata and type information and, and yada, yada. And so, how much memory is that taking up? And then, how fast in practice, based on however it ends up being laid out, can it be copied around, and is that so fast that you don't even notice it as an end user? Because of course, here we don't really care about throughput. Like for the editor experience, it's really just about latency and like how long does it take to complete the operation? Is it under some threshold of user perceptibility? If so, then great. Otherwise, worse experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that brings us exactly to this question of the granularity and compilation units, and here. My gut feeling is that in terms of your know, language semantics, the right generality for a compilation unit is probably a bunch of files, a digital class, like what you have in Rust. Because kind of like, yeah, you start working on a thing and it is like all in the same file. And then you kind of like want to split it across files, but you don't necessarily want to significantly refactor your abstraction boundaries. Because kind of like a reasonable size for like a single thing developed by a single person as a library is still kind of like larger than a file. At the same time, when we speak about incremental compilation, especially in the IDE context, you definitely want your like largest units to be scoped to a file. Because, well, tiles can be unbounded in size. There is like, for example, garbage collector for C-sharp. Which is like just a single large file of like 15 megabytes, like text file or something. Oh, like wow. <laughs> yeah, like it's, yeah, it's, gigantic. or like the type check of TypeScript, which is kind of like the same story, just like, you know, like, crouch that goes and goes and goes. But wow. most of the time, like, there is like a push to keep files like reasonable in size. Yeah. Everything larger than 10,000 lines is exceedingly rare. And like 10,000 lines is kind of like not that large amount of lines. So saying that, hey, you are linear in the size of the largest file in your project is probably reasonable. Yeah. At the same time, if you're assuming that our unit of compilation is a bunch of files, making this bunch of files a unit of your incremental computation in the database is probably going to be too much. Because again, if for a file, there is like a reasonable quasi bound, which people try not to exceed for a like completion unit, like they could be gigantic. And that is like a problem with Rust because it's sort of architectured in a way which makes you want to do things on completion unit granularity. And that's just too big. So kind of like Right. from a structure of Rust language, you cannot really extract this single file because Rust compiler doesn't
0: really care about facts. So, yeah, so we actually already, fortunately, in Rock, the compilation unit is a single module, which is a single file. So, and also, we don't allow circular dependencies between them. So we basically have already sort of, fortunately, set ourselves up for success with that. <laughs> Elm is the same way. I actually was really surprised when I got to Rust to learn that the smallest unit of compilation was an entire crate as opposed to just a single module or single file. And I was also surprised that you are allowed to have modules that create like cyclic dependencies between themselves. Although I guess those two things go hand in hand. Like, well, you could choose to rule out, like, disallow modules from having cyclic dependencies. But I guess if the compilation unit is like all the things in the crate anyway, then maybe you don't care. But yeah, certainly if we want to be able to just compile one module without having to take into account anything other than I guess like its dependencies and their dependencies, then it yeah, it makes more sense to me that we would. Disallow cyclic dependencies because otherwise you end up <laughs> having to like ping pong back and forth and nobody wants that.
1: Yeah, I would love actually to dive a little bit deeper here, although that goes into programming language theory rather than compilers. But it's like something I, I really love about Rust. So I think it is like not that you could disallow cyclic dependencies between modules in Rust, but rather it is exactly the point that circular dependencies are allowed because, well, if you design a language, you need circular dependencies at some level of granularity because you want to have mutually recursive functions like foo calls bar and bar calls foo. Sure. You want to have cyclic data structures like a tree contains a branch or a leaf, but a branch contains other trees. You cannot like, just forbid cyclic dependencies. Your task is to pick the right boundary. And I sort of think that probably Rust's boundary, which says, "Hey, you could have more than one file, which kind of like are part of a single whole," is probably better for organization of software. Because even if you're like you're writing a library, even if your interface, the public world, is small, the implementation can be pretty large, and Rust allows you to do a natural thing. I think scoping this to the file works, but it is not perfect from the user language perspective. Well, again, oftentimes people abuse circular dependencies and create circular dependencies where ideally there shouldn't be any. But my my gut feeling is probably like Rust, Rust nailed this exactly correct. At the same time, yes, if you actually say that file is the boundary of circular dependency, this makes your compiler faster. So although, arguably, your range becomes less convenient, which again, is also arguable. I believe that, but reasonable people can disagree. It certainly helps compiler to get faster. And if this is yeah. already set up in ROG, then that's great. And for anyone who kind of complains about this, you could like avoid arguing with them by just saying, hey, but this makes compiler so much faster.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, and definitely, like that was the original reason for it was knowing that it can make the compiler faster, specifically at incremental recompiles, or I guess especially. I have to say I have mixed feelings about it. Setting aside the performance concerns, like using it in Rust, on the one hand, it is definitely convenient when I'm writing never to get that category of errors. Like it never says like Hey, this module can't depend on this other module because that would create a circular dependency." I never see that error in Rust, and it's like cool that that means it never blocks me. Having said that. It has gotten annoying sometimes when I'm like, okay, I'm trying to sort of extract something and I'm like, okay, well, who depends on this thing? And then once I start to look into what my dependency graph actually is, I find that I've accidentally made a mess for myself and that mess would have been easy to fix back when I was like right at the point of creating it. But now that they are tangled together and I want to extract this thing and it's hard, it's like kind of too late. And now I'm like, I actually kind of wish that I'd gotten that error. On balance, I don't know, like if, again, completely setting aside the performance thing, I don't know. If someone was like, hey, what do you wish that Rust did? Do you wish that it would introduce that feature, even if it didn't improve the performance at all? I'm not sure what I would say. I think, I kind of want to say I would say I'd like to have cyclic module dependencies banned, but I don't know. Maybe I would be annoyed by it in practice too much.
1: Uh, Yeah. Like, for me personally, I kind of like start design from the crates. So, kind of, like, that's what I think first and foremost in Rust. like What are components which are independent? So you think not in terms of dependencies, but you think in terms of independences. Like for example, a compiler should never ever know anything about build system or like language server protocol. And then if you have like two things which should not know about each other, then you kind of like pull those into separate crates. And like for me, like it's usually crates give me exactly right granularity for the design, the design of things.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think more in terms of modules first, which is kind of my habit from like Elm and other languages. I do think there's this interesting. I don't know. There's some like conference talk idea somewhere, like bubbling out of my head around this topic of sort of the lost art of boundaries, where like it seems like when I look into and read about older systems and sort of programming language, like pitches, I guess, like, or people talking about in terms of like, oh, this is an important feature for a language to have. There was a lot of talk about things like, well, I guess maybe this comes around from like, you know, with C is like a really popular language and like, hey, if you just have one giant global namespace, one obvious thing that happens that's annoying is that the names can collide and you're like, oh, well, you can solve that by prefixing things and like having a convention where you always put something and then an underscore before each of the things that are in this quote-unquote namespace, and that can like kind of solve the problem in practice most of the time. But then there's a separate question of access, like what is allowed to depend on which other things. And if every module is in one giant global namespace, even if you solve the name collision problem, there's a second less obvious problem to having everything in that space, which is that Since everything can depend on everything else, it's easy to create a mess for yourself, kind of 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 the type that I just described, but even worse than that, where you have things that are sort of like unintentionally depending on implementation details of other things, and then it turns out that you just can't change anything because when you change any implementation detail to try and make one part of the system better, it unintentionally breaks some other part of the system. And so this is where you get the idea of information hiding, where you say like, this implementation detail is not exposed. You get the idea of public and private. And that allows you to... I mean, primarily, it's a communication tool where you're like, look, yes, (laughs) the bits are there in memory. If you really, really wanted to, you could go in and change them. But don't, because I might change them later. And so if you rely on that, you're going to break. And I don't want anyone else who's using this code to run into that, whether that's somebody else in my organization or maybe even just myself six months from now when I forgot about what my plans were with this data structure. And you could do that with a comment that says like, hey, don't depend on this. But it's obviously like, comments can do a lot. But as we've seen with like types, for example, it's just better if the machine can help you with it. And the reason I think of this as somewhat of a lost art is that it seems like there's proportionately less discussion about those sorts of boundaries around like, what should be publicly exposed, what should be hidden. How do we facilitate backwards compatibility, or when should we choose not to be backwards compatible? How do we transition between things in terms of like navigating, like breaking changes to things? All those types of things seem to have been discussed less than these sort of like abstract ideas around these concepts. Like encapsulation is good because blank, but it doesn't seem to be going back to the original like motivating problem as much as just being like, well, that's just what you're supposed to do. And the example i can think of that makes this kind of clear to me is that uh, and well maybe it's not the case anymore but like for quite a while when i was an enterprise java developer earlier on in my career i remember that there was this very strong cultural norm of the way that you do things is when you want to make a new class you always define all your variables or your class members to be private and then you always make a public getter and setter for them which I think the argument was like, well, what if you want to you know not actually store it in the future? You want to make it calculated based on another field? This was like something that I would hear. But now I think about that as like, well, that's just the same thing as exposing everything. Like you might as well just make it public at that point. Everything is going to be able to depend on everything else. if you have public getters and setters for everything. And as a consequence of that, you're going to run into the same potential like things depending on implementation details and all the downsides of that. But that didn't seem to be really like part of the conversation at all, at least not that I remember. And so that's, yeah, that's something that I I think has become something of a lost art and is something that we should think more about than we do as a culture.
1: Yeah. Actually, I would say there are like even like two separate threads of thought here. One is how you build large systems using large teams, how you agree on interfaces, how you agree on what can vary And what can theory. And this is kind of like where like we can see exactly what's the problem with getters and setters, where is logical fallacy? The logical fallacy is that allegedly we introduce getters and setters so that we can change implementation without changing the interface. Because kind of like in the Java language, you cannot replace a field with a property. But this all happens in your code base. So if you change a field to compute a property later, well, you could fire up your intelligent idea and say, hey, refactor the field to a property. And it will do it atomically across your code base. So this only matters for classes which are boundary, which are at the boundary of a system. And well, right. as our geometry teaches us, the boundary is a one dimension less than kind of the interior, so it is proportionally infinitely smaller than the bulk of our system. So that's kind of like one idea.
0: Right, because like when I do a refactor rename, that doesn't change anything on your machine. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess if we are speaking about Java, like I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if there always like, you know, some login library, we should... Right. Use,
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, maybe, maybe I shouldn't assume that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. But there is another third which relates to this concept. And that is from the implementer, from the compiler writing point of view. And I think that is the lost art of separate compilation. Because Hmm. I really love this topic about modules and large-scale development. And the best module system so far, which I know is like Rust. The second best module system is C. Because C is glorious. C gives you separate compilation. The power of header files is that you can compile stuff with access only to the header. And that gives you a like very clear physical boundary, which says, hey, if I change this code, then none of my clients need to be recompiled. This is like completely physically encapsulated. And that is something which kind of like got lost once we get public and private keywords. Because with public and private, we speak about logical visibility. But physically, once you start compiling the stuff, like, of course, you need sizes of things and you, uh, curl yourself into completion model where you need to know sizes of everything. And that in turns lock you in a completion model where if you have like a layered cake of modules, you change a size of something in the deepest module and that calculates up to your top-level application. So every code at every layer needs to be changed because well, there is no any boundary which says, hey, this change is not only logically invisible, it is physically invisible because we have all the required interactions here. And my gut feeling is that this is something you might start hitting when you scale your code base. I've heard that Google has some equivalent of like header files for Java, basically. So kind of like you take your Java library and then like this tool extracts the ABI, a binary interface of that library, so that when you kind of like recompile stuff at scale, you can actually save on those recalculations. And this is, I think, like thinking in terms of those physical interfaces isn't something which is prevalent among modern languages. On the other hand, I'm kind of like beginning to think that maybe you don't need this because when we come back to Zig, one interesting thing about Zig's compiler is that it kind of like doesn't support separate compilation at all. So, Elfen is compiled as a single compilation unit. And if you think about it, well, why do we need this additional separate compilation back in the day? Well, it was because simply we didn't have enough RAM to hold all the compilation units in memory together. So, like, right. programs were too big for computers of that time. And we wanted to compile them in parts. These days, it's actually not true. Even, like, for the largest programs, they actually can't see it even in your laptop. Like, for example, you could just, like, go and compile Linux kernel or whatever, and like, it could take like, 20 minutes. <laughs> right. But, like, 20 minutes is not, like, 20 hours. So, it is manageable. Well,
0: Chromium, on the other hand... <laughs>
1: Well, maybe, yeah, having compiled Chromium. As I've heard, it takes hours. <laughs> yeah, but kind of like anyway, the boundary where you really have to go beyond a single machine, choose. and if you don't go beyond a single machine, then you could do that thing that Zig does, where you kind of like say, okay, I have a single process, a single compiler, But I'm going to be multi threaded and I'm going to reuse all the hardware that I have on this machine to kind of like build your program efficiently in memory. And I think there's kind of like this this is level margin because when you compile this on a single computer, you get allegedly much better performance because you don't need to make your data serializable. It's all in this single address space. On the other hand, because you don't have this extra rigid boundaries, which allow for separate compilation, you cannot do distributed compilation where like you compile one part of your program on one machine and another part of your program on a different machine, and then kind of like just glue those quickly together.
0: So I think there's two relevant use cases for separate compilation. So one is, like you're saying, sort of a performance within a single build. So yeah, like I might want to build one, like, these three modules I want to build on a different build server, and then I want to be able to very easily stitch them back into my big build, and it should end up producing exactly the same output as if I built them on my own machine, except that now I was able to distribute it across multiple machines. But the other use case is actually, I want to distribute a library without distributing the source code. Like I, Let's say I, I built a library for, I don't know, HTTP or like LibSSL or something like that. Like That's something where like you said, you can distribute, okay, here is the binary that is like pre-compiled, and then also here is the header file that tells you about like what the ABI is. And you can with those two put together, you can now use this whole thing. And not only do you not have access to the implementation because the compiler doesn't let you, it also like you literally don't even have the source code. So it's not even like it's there and you're being restricted from <laughs> from accessing it. It's like, no, the implementation is actually just opaque, and if you really want to go in and rely on the internals of the implementation, well, you disassembler time because that's the literally the only way you can access what you know to see how it's implemented is to look at the actual compiled binary, which um, is something that has interesting cultural implications. Like I remember hearing about the expression problem, and it was talking about. Are you familiar with this? Yeah. Yeah. So the expression problem is formulated as. I don't even remember what the what, what the wording is anymore. But the part that I was thinking of was that it seems like it's a really easy problem, except that they specifically add in the constraint of and you're not allowed to recompile. It's like, well, okay, but who cares? Just recompile, you know, make your compiler fast enough, and then I don't I don't mind to recompile now and then. And it took me a long time before I realized, like after I'd heard about the expression problem, that I realized that one of the reasons for saying like you know you don't want to recompile is like, oh, what if you're distributing this compiled artifact to other people? Like you're not just like trying to avoid recompilation in order to preserve your own build, it's so that you can like say, "Here you go, feel free to add this to your running system and dynamically load it and whatever, which is a yeah a much more practical consideration <laughs> than just like sort of an abstract for fun constraint
1: yeah, to maybe add one more dimension where you need separate compilation is that even if you don't do distributed build, separate compilation. Make your incremental local build faster. Because, well, if you can compile two things independently on different machines, that actually means that, hey, you might change one of them, and the result of the compilation of the second one is fully reusable. So, kind of like when you start thinking about incremental, the original kind of like naive understanding is that, well, we just like use some magic pixie dust, magic incremental computation and then everything becomes magically faster. But that's not how it works. The optimal implementation of incremental anything cannot do less work than the change you get at the end. So kind of like if you renamed a single variable and that variable was used in like 1,000 files, then those files, need you need to do something there. So to make incremental effective, you not only need an effective incremental computation engine, but you also need to make your program amenable to incremental calculation. You need this like boundaries, these firewalls, which says, hey, who cares what is behind this header file? The only thing that matters is the header file. And as long as the header file is the same, everything else can be reused as is.
0: Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean modules in essence are they expose the same information as a header file, as long as you don't care about the actual like compiled binary piece of it. If you look at, uh, you know, like a Rust module, for example, all the things that are pub are like type signatures. You're like, okay, these are exposed. I can see the type signature of this thing that I'm calling. As it happens, yes, you also have the source code right there. But as a matter of like compiler rules, you're not allowed to go in and like. I mean, I guess you could look at the source code file, but. Rust doesn't give you a way, I guess, to depend on the implementation details unless it says pub. Like if you have a struct and none of the fields are marked as pub, then yeah, you can see that that struct is there. You can see what its type is. You can see if it has type parameters. You can see what its size is, things like that. But you cannot see what individual fields it has or what their types are unless they're marked as pub.
1: That is actually not true. I think Rust is a great example of the difference between visibility at the logical level and visibility at the physical level. Interesting, okay. Because at the physical level, your implementation details absolutely do leak everywhere in Rust. Like, for example, it is actually possible to have unnameable types in Rust. Well, for example, you can have like private module and in this private module, you have like public type and then you expose this public type through some other function. Or you could have return impl something and that leaks your sink and sandbags. And well, I guess I think you could also do like some nasty things like you could have a public trade, but then you have, I don't know, a second private trade and some kind of a blanket impulse on this like private trade, which also adds like impulse for that public thing. So that sort of means that kind of like Rust tries to kind of like uh, make this non-public. Things not likable, but fundamentally this is the thing. When the compiler actually compiles stuff, it has access to absolutely everything, and kind of like periodically it needs to it needs the data. Like for example, like it always needs to know the sizes of things. Uh, That's like true. Yeah. Kind of like in C++ or in C, you can employ this private implementation idiom to cut uh, these uh, compilation times. Well, I think there are like two big reasons why Rust is fundamentally slow to compile. And, like important note, although I say that Rust is fundamentally slow to compile, I think these days, in practice, Rust is actually pretty fast to compile because compiler compiler is massively faster than it was uh, 10 years ago. And like if you don't architecture your code in a reasonable way, if you don't have like a ton of proc macros, a ton of generics and whatnot, Rust is well. It's not like super fast to compile, but it's not excretingly slow. Anyway, but fundamentally, one part of the slowness comes from generics and this mind bogglingly hilarious uh, property that you compile generics many times for any compilation for every compilation unit. And then in the end, the linker just throws out copies of the code because, well, that's how C completion works.
0: I didn't know this. Hang on. So this is monomorphization, right? So yeah. you have multiple different specializations. So the way that the Rock compiler does monomorphization is that we do it basically on demand. So it's like we don't generate a specialization until it's actually used in practice by your program. And so there's nothing to throw away at the end because we only ever did bothered doing the ones that got used, if that makes sense. It's almost a form of built-in dead code elimination
1: in some sense. Yeah. But what happens if you have two different files, two separate compilation units, and they both use, say, the extra of integers?
0: So we're only using, how do I say this? Like, we will type check an entire module, but we actually won't code generate the entire module. The code generation actually starts from like the entry points, and it's like on a per function level. So... Even if a given module exposes like 100 different functions, but you only call one of them in practice, you know, tracing all the way back to the entry point of the program, then we'll only actually do code generation for that one function.
1: Yeah, and that is a reasonable model of compilation for a language with monomorphization. Okay, so Rust doesn't do this. (laughs) Rust is exactly the same deal as C++. You basically uh, monomorphize stuff many times, and then at the end, Blinker just goes and throws away unnecessary data. And oh no.: is, Yeah. And that is kind of like accidental loss of performance, fueled by the desire of reusing Cs compilation model, because that's kind of like, you know, that's the naked model of moral compilation that almost everyone reuses C compilation model where like, are compiled and linked. But in reality, it just doesn't work. And you either <laughs> get this kind of stupidity. Where you cogenerate again and again and again, or you kind of like do the opposite, where you stuff your entire compiler inside the linker and call that link time optimization. While in fact, it is actually, yeah, it's like link time generation because what you are linking isn't actually machine code. What you are linking is just like pieces of LLVM IR.
0: Wow. OK, so I hear what you're saying. I believe that this is what they do. It would never occur to me to do it that way because, I mean, as soon as I say this, I'm like, yeah, but the combinatorics are just going to be absolutely outrageous because you have potentially n different functions, each of which calls n different other generic, or m other generic functions. Now you have n times m, and then each of those could get, if you don't actually use them in practice, this is going to be really horrendous. And then I'm like, now I understand why everybody says monomorphization is really slow. Because if this is what they're doing, like <laughs> yeah, that is that is totally outrageous. I can't believe is that so this is just what every monomorphizing compiler other than rock and I hope others do? Like is uh, that this is just normal?
1: So that's what pass does, that's what RAS does. Zeke obviously doesn't do this because well Zeke sure. you kind of like do this whole thing. And like basically everything that builds on which wants to have monomorphization and builds on the CL chain has to do this. Because well kind of like well basically C++ chain is essentially like map reduce which is factored in a map and reduce steps which made sense for C which doesn't have monomorphization for right. a language with monomorphization you actually you want to own your linker you want to kind of like do what makes sense for you it is still going to be map reduce but the steps are going to be slightly different but if you want to plug that into a shape of your makefile for compiling C code, well, then you need to do stupid things. Wow. Okay, well, this
0: explains a lot because I'd always heard that monomorphization was... I'd heard two things. So one is that monomorphization is really slow. I heard this before we even started on Rock and I was like, I don't know, let's try and do it anyway. It was a little bit more of a sophisticated analysis than that, but I think it was something more along the lines of, I had some guesses as to if we do certain other things fast, maybe it'll be fine in practice. I really did until you just said that, I didn't realize that that was what other people meant by monomorphization. But the second thing that I heard, and it wasn't so much that like this was new information, but rather a new way of thinking about something that I already knew but didn't think about in that way, which was Graydon horror, who made Rust, told me that he kind of thinks about monomorphization as a form of inlining. Because essentially, it's like every time you're calling a different version of a generic or you know, a list of string versus list of int versus list of bool, essentially what monomorphization does as opposed to other strategies is it's like, okay, well, let's just inline the generic implementation and then proceed from there, which is pretty accurate. That is basically what's happening. However, what's different about that is that well sorry not not what's different about that but what's relevant about thinking about it in that way is that it means that the heuristic for how slow should this make my program should be about as slow as inlining makes your program which is to say not like that's not that's a, a super common optimization that people use to make compilation maybe go a little bit slower but like programs run faster but like inlining is just not usually something that's blamed for like long compile times at all it's all sorts of other things and so If monomorphization is kind of just a form of inlining, why would that on its own make your compilation slow unless, of course, it's because there's this combinatoric explosion of doing unnecessary work and then cleaning it up later?
1: Well, that's a trick. Inlining also makes your compilation slow in exactly the same way that conditional that monomorphization. It's just that people don't actually use inlining all that much. Kind of like, to the first approximation, 1% of your stuff marked as and marked as inline and half of your stuff is generic in some kind of thing. Because physically, if we speak about Rust compilation model, when you slap an inline on function, what it does, in effect, is including the body of this function, like the original well, not really the original source code and like this well, let's say source code into the compiled library. So the same thing you do for Genetics and like really, I would say that probably it's better to think of inlining as a form of monomorphization because kind of Uh that's what happens there. And there is again kind of like this advice that you don't want to kind of like well again inlining inside a single crate happens automatically because compiler has access to the body of the functions of this crate. For inlining to work across the crates. You need to mark relevant things with inline keyword. And what this inline keyword does is just including the text of the function into the compiled library. And if the function expression is already generic, then you don't need to add this inline keyword. And that actually brings me to kind of like one other kind of like deep big error is naked uh, moment in Rust is that. Rust doesn't do LTO by default when compiling in release, but doesn't make sense. Really, for the compilation model that Rust has, it really, really wants to have this LTO because you don't want to add inlines all over your boundaries. And that's what, what effectively, you need to do. Like If you are authoring a Rust crate and you have something which is a getter, and which is not generic, you must make it inline. Otherwise, if people compile your code without LTO, then that's definitely going to be like a real function call, which is I mean, which the compiler enables to analyze. So that's, that's kind of like that. And if you can practice, everyone compile with LTO anyway. It's just that it's not default. And the fallacy here is that the model really requires. LTO. that is what makes sense. You want to make this inline decisions across the crate, but it's not a default, and that's a better equilibrium. As a reminder, right now we are discussing of like one of the things which makes Rust fundamental slow to compile, and there was the second one, so we can get back to it before I forgot.
0: <laughs> sure. I don't know what trade-offs go into the decisions behind like those defaults and also that like monomorphization strategy, but, I mean, of course, the next thing that I wonder is, like, okay, Is there any effort to a change? I'm sure somebody suggested changing the default, and there's some reason why not to. I just, I don't know what it is. But I wonder about this other thing, about is it that Rust monomorphizes that way just because in the original implementation, that was kind of like what they knew how to do or it seemed easier. And now today, I mean, I don't know, couldn't they go back and do something more like what Rock does and just say, like, let's start from the entry points to things that are like publicly accessible to and I guess maybe the answer is that because you have this hard boundary it creates, there's no analysis that goes across them. Like another thing that's true of rock is that so when I say compilation unit, I guess what I mean is up through the end of type checking it's like is like the compilation unit of of an individual module, but after that, when we go to like actually build the program, it's like kind of whole program analysis from then on. It's like for code generation, it's like all the modules are just like wide open, the compiler can look at everything all at once and use that to generate your final binary. There's no like, okay, we completely finished with this chunk and now it's a binary and we're moving on. And maybe that's the kind of key to how we're able to do this. And maybe if Rust did want to do that, then they would have to give up some things that currently people can rely on for like intermediate binaries, maybe?
1: I guess the answer here is that Rust really wants to fit into existing C and C++ classical system. Kind of like you want Rust, at least in some sense, to be a drop-in replacement for those things, and that means that yeah, you need to reuse those toolchains. And also, doing this like in a principled way, it's just like a lot of so, sort of means that you like need to to write your like entire linker. And that's what, for example, Zig is like planning to do. Zig really wants to like own its entire compilation stack. But well, that's something you need to do quite a lot of effort to do. While kind of like reusing existing toolchain is just well, in some sense free.
0: But that's only true if the intermediate compilation units are compiling all the way to binaries on disk. For example, each crate is compiling to, like in Rock, even across, like if I have five package dependencies, like a package being equivalent to a crate, that I'm like getting off the internet in Rock, at the end of the day, again, the compiler just puts all those together into one giant blob of modules, and it's like, cool, I can do anything across all of those, and it only spits out one binary at the end, which is like an object file, and then that's the only thing that needs any linking done on it. So it's not like it needs to do any linking of any of these incremental things along the way. It's just like all of that hangs out in memory together,
1: and that means uh, that you have written your own linker because the compiler is also a linker, and that in turn means that you probably need some shenanigans if you want to interact with like native code. Like for example, if you want to dynamically link stuff like Glibc and there is like symbol versioning you know, or stuff like that, probably I, I don't I actually don't know about it. <laughs> yeah, kind
0: of so the reason I don't think of that as linking is that what I think of as linking is I've got two binaries and I want to combine them somehow, or two or more. We don't actually do any of that as part of this process. It's more like we have all these data structures and memories, all these IRs, and then we go finally from one final IR. All the way to binary, and then we're like, "All right, now we're done." Now, separate from that, we also do do our own linking afterwards. Well, typically, we do our own linking with exactly one other binary, which is the one that the platform generates. So, you're right. Like, if we had to do something like we had like a a big CFFI story and stuff like that, like other than the platform thing, that could definitely complicate matters, which we don't. So, <laughs> because we have the platform thing, so it doesn't come up. But even with just the one platform, now granted, that is very limited in terms of scope because it's like okay. The compiler generated one binary for all your raw code, and then you came in with one binary for the host, and we just need to link those two binaries together. It's not like there's a whole large number of them with all these complicated concerns. It's like it's just those two. But at least today, we actually want to get rid of this, but we do actually use the system linker on a lot of targets for that. We have like a surgical linker, but it's not completely far enough along to be a complete replacement in all cases for the system linker yet.
1: Yeah, and in Rust, you kind of like want to do linking for in- intermediate steps as well, because, well, kind of like if you imagine rewriting Firefox, you are going to have a lot of C++ modules, and you're going to have a lot of Rust modules. And they also are going to be sandwiched against each other, so you kind of like want to move this whole thing into a single linker at the end, which, had to, which uh, will have to deal with both Rust and C++ here. Yeah. So...
0: That yeah, makes sense. And I think
1: yeah, kind of like large privacy story is what uh, makes this hard. Let me still go back to that second second reason. Why a Rust is fundamentally slow. Become. And yes, that reason is the absence of the private implementation idea that the absence of okay, so because let me describe it again. Let's say you like write some big piece of software and as any big piece of software it contains it consists of layers. And the problem with Rust is that if you change the bottommost layer, everything on top needs to be recompiled because there is no here file. There is no trick like in C or C++ where you say, hey, I am changing the implementation of my bottommost layer, but because here file is the same, nothing above needs to be recompiled. So only a small quick-linking step at the end is all that's needed. And that's kind of painful. That kind of like means that you're like... Compile time for us is roughly quadratic with the size of the project because the more layers you add on top, the more pain you get when you work on the bottommost layer because probably you are going to have a fair amount of integrated tests and integrated tests would want to compile a different thing and one argument here is that well our compiler is incremental so by kind of like smartly tracking dependencies compiler can do essentially the same thing as programmers in C and C++ do manually. I don't. Fully agree with with that argument, because well, for one thing, cargo still has to involve a process for like Rusty process for any of those layers. And even if Rusty process ends up like just returning and saying, "Hey, I don't need to like do anything," still there's like a whole bunch of extra processes. While again in C, like in makefile, there isn't going to be a dependency, there isn't going to be an end time change, so we completely skip that step. But the second reason why this affects compile time, compile times is even more important. The thing is, when you have a header file, you as a human, as a programmer, you understand which kind of changes affect your consumers and which are not. And you are kind of like, Hey, it looks like I'm touching this header file way too often. So let me refactor this code in a way that I don't have to touch the header. That much, that kind of like more of my changes are encapsulated. So, uh, kind of like you get a feedback about how well factored your program is for faster and transient compilation. While if you just hide all this smartness into the compiler, uh, the compiler will try to find a way to make this incremental. And maybe your code is written in a way that it makes it impossible to compile incrementally, but you don't see this because there isn't this like physical manifestation of your compilation boundaries. And kind of like, yeah, I think that like, the combination of those two mean that Rust is going to be pretty, pretty slow to compile Because kind of like, again, absence of header files, this point is pretty deeply ingrained into the fabric of the language itself. For it sure, have, yeah. It doesn't have capability to abstract the like, physical details.
0: Yeah. Well, this also explains something that a challenge that we'd been considering, we need to like figure out exactly what we're going to do about it, and I don't know why it never occurred to me to wonder, like, oh, what does Rust do for this? But now I know the answer based on this conversation. And the challenge is the following. What happens if, let's say, I've already gone through, like, we're working on making things get cached on disk for incremental compilation. It's pretty straightforward to figure out, given that we sort of compile each module as its own independent unit. It's pretty straightforward to figure out how to say, okay, well, let me just parse it, canonicalize it. We can save the entire, entire canonical IR to disk that's very straightforward we can type check everything and save all the types that we figured out to disk that's also very straightforward now what's less straightforward is figuring out is there any profitable way to save sort of like monomorphized code and one possible answer is like well yeah okay so i build everything starting from the root we go through each module we see what actually ends up getting done in practice and then we save it and we're like cool now now we have it saved in the cache well what's tricky about that is that now we have these sort of cached module things, but it's not like a comprehensive monomorphization of that entire module. It's like, well, what happened to come up in the particular build that you did? Because we only generate the bare minimum that was necessary for this particular build that you're doing, based on what your actual entry point's doing. And we could be 10 modules deep here, but like, if that 10 modules deep module only has one function with one specialization of its generics called, then we just generate that one. So then the question becomes, okay, let's say we just cache that one thing, well, what happens if later on I switch branches to the same code base, but a different branch? And now I redo it. And now it's like, oh, well, now that, that module has a different specialization. What do we do? Well, okay, we can just, no problem, we'll just add it on there. Well, okay, fine. But what does adding it on there mean? Now we have these two different binary chunks. Do we just have these sort of, and we don't want to just splat them both onto the end of the file? Because now if we do that, now we're saying, okay, well, we've now basically got a situation where every time you like switch branches and maybe have new, versions we just start accumulating more and more of these things because some of the old ones are obsolete and if we're not going to just do that then do we need to get smart about garbage collecting them or whatever and if not then have we just ended up in the point where we're just not getting any any benefit out of the caching at all and it's just like well at this point why not just redo everything from scratch when it comes to like the monomorphized code and all that so i mean we, we have some ideas we've talked about but i now understand why this is a challenge for us that like is not a challenge for Rust. And I mean <laughs> well, in some sense it's because they're doing all of the work anyway, and like doing way more work than is necessary and then throwing it away afterwards is actually the status quo <laughs> in Rust, whereas it's not for us.
1: That is excellent because I was thinking about something we discussed in the first part about how you could garbage collect things. And one of the ideas I discussed there is that you could identify things by name. And ensure that each named thing only has one version. And there is an interesting anecdote about that in Cargo, and that is exactly this problem. But it scaled but it is scaled to the level of crates, so whole completion units, rather than monomorphizations. So originally, the idea for Cargo was that whenever you compile a crate, you compile it to a file whose name is well, basically the hash of the name of the crate. So that means that if you make a change and you recompile stuff, then cargo goes and replaces this file. And that keeps your target directory bounded in size. But then people started noticing things like, okay, so uh, I now like switch branches or maybe I switch some compilation flag. I don't Toggle so we'll debug or something like that, and that like basically requires Cargo to redo everything. Oh, and redo I everything. The, yeah. yeah, I think the most common common thing was like switching version of compiler. So kind of uh, compile okay. with like, stable Rust. Okay, you compile it from scratch. That's okay. You compile it first time. Then you compile with the nightly Rust. Well, okay, you compile from scratch because it's nightly Rust. But then you compile from with stable with stable Rust again, and you again have to recompile everything because well. Cargo kind of like overrode the artifacts because we hash by name and we don't include version of compiler there. So what Cargo did? Well, Cargo started to add more things into the hash, which defines where on these the cached artifacts goes. And the result there is that, well, now everything is cached. So kind of like you always get fast compile times. On the opposite side, everything is cached. So your target directory ends up being bigger than not modules. And that's kind of like unfortunate. And I think lately, Cargo has added some kind of garbage collection scheme there where it like periodically records on these, which artifacts were used so that it can later go back to the artifacts and like remove old unused ones.
0: Yeah, this is the same thing we've talked about is wanting to like, I mean, the switching branches and also Doing like a bisect are two use cases that I have in mind where I like it's really important that we preserve some amount of past compilation information that that like can persist across branches. But obviously, yeah, not forever because otherwise then it just builds up and up and up and, and eventually you have half your hard disk is in like rock cache, which is obviously nobody wants. So I mean, really the challenge I think is figuring out a way to clear out old cache files, like let's say, you know, 30 plus days old or something like that, in a way that runs with like sort of good tail latency, for lack of a better term, like it's fairly predictable. And like, it's not like most of the builds don't notice it. But then every every once in a while, you have a really slow build because it's going through doing the cleaning. It's like, how do you sort of spread that out across the builds and ideally do it during a part of the build where you sort of can't be using all of your cores effectively anyway, because you have some bottleneck. It's like, cool, right now, we have like so a little bit of extra like CPU cores. Let's let's go and clean out the, the cache for next time of old stale stuff. And then that way, hopefully, when you're switching branches back and forth a lot, it's like yeah, everything's still fast. You're doing a bisect, you know, everything's still fast. Unless you bisect to like so long ago, you know, that it was before the cache got cleared out. In which case, okay, fine. That's the trade off of, of clearing it out periodically.
1: Yeah, and there's kind of like this goes to like this nested program of like what's in like the stale data? How you kind of like figure out what you need to remove. And this is a different lesson for me, which I learned at TargetMiddle, and which I wished I learned when I was hacking on Rust Analyzer. And the lesson here is a scan resistance. Implement any kind of cache. You need to think about scan-resistant workloads, because kind of like, well, imagine you are like building something, you are iterating on your code, and like you're hacking on a single file. So like caches related to this file, they kind of like, get very, very caught and it, it is great. Caching works perfectly. But then you realize that, hey, I kind of like, want to check how it was working like a week ago. So you switch to the branch a week ago, uh, you run compile, and now everything's changed. So your compiler goes and effectively scans over the entire set of your files. And if you do, Something uh, simple like LRU, that means this compilation kind of like completely evicts all the stuff from iteration on that single file. So like just compiling once on a fresh branch completely blows away all the caches. So then you kind of like figured out how it worked last week. You go back and you start hiking this file and well, all the caches again because all the caches were kind of like, scanned away. And that is kind of like the smartness here is that if you have smart cache eviction policy, you could actually detect those scans and make it so that kind of like you don't catch those things unless you do it a couple of times. Yeah. And this is exactly the thing that Rust Analizer likes. And it turns out that like half of a workload of Rust and Laser is exactly those kinds of scans. So there is like a lot of redundant work there, simply because I didn't know this uh, particular keyword that time. Wow,
0: there are so many trails. I, I feel like we should, we could talk about this hour, you know, for hours and hours.
1: <laughs> There's just
0: like so many rabbit holes here. I don't know. Is, is there anything else we should really make sure to talk about before we wrap up?
1: Not really. I think I've told everything I wanted today.
0: Nice. Yeah, this is great. I mean, I'd love to chat about this more, <laughs> like another time, because yeah, I mean, I definitely learned some really valuable stuff. So I really appreciate your uh, talking to me about it and. Yeah, it's it's a great topic, but it's hard to do well. But the payoff is really worth it.
1: Yeah, and I also kind of like excited how while uh, this like topic of like compilation units and like separate compilation and whatever was like dormant for I don't know the past many years, it feels like modern languages like Rock, Rust, Zig they try to find something like new ways. Like for example, yeah. Swift, its generics Swift, which actually have like stable APIs, which is uh, yeah, something yeah which that, that's, should that's, that's totally stable. wild. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, here's hoping that uh, more and more languages start to benefit from this stuff in the future. Uh, yeah, for sure. All right. well, thanks so much for uh, joining me. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, and maybe uh, one day we'll do episode three as well. Love to. I'll look forward to it.